seen anything like this. Many who had traveled from many miles away, they'd never seen anything like what they were seeing on this day when Jesus was opening the eyes of the blind and healing the leopards and performing all these miracles. But as Jesus would begin to teach here in chapter 6, the people would soon be saying, I have never heard any teaching like what I'm hearing right now. The first seven verses of Jesus' sermon, verses 20 through 26, contain what we call the Beatitudes. Now, many of you have heard this term before, but you may not know what that term means. In fact, I looked it up again this last week because I was a little fuzzy myself. Beatitude is just a fancy word for a state of blessedness. It means a state of blessedness. So in other words, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus reveals who God blesses and who God curses. You may want to jot that down on your handouts today. Jesus reveals who God blesses and who God curses. And surprise, surprise, what Jesus reveals about the blessed and the cursed in these seven verses is 180 degrees from conventional wisdom. I like how William Barclay describes these Beatitudes. He says this, These Beatitudes are a series of bombshells. It may well be that we have read them so often that we have forgotten how revolutionary they are. They're quite unlike the laws which a philosopher or a typical wise man might lay down. Each one is a challenge. They take the accepted standards and turn them upside down. The people whom Jesus called happy, the world would call wretched. And the people Jesus called wretched, the world would call happy. That's pretty well said, don't you think? Jesus is going to say who's really happy, and the world says, no, 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 the opposite are happy. Jesus is going to say who's cursed, and the world would tend to say, no, 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 the opposite people are cursed. Leon Morris says it this way, these beatitudes make a mockery of the world's values. They exalt what the world despises, and they reject what the world admires. Keep that in mind as we dive into the specific verses here in these beatitudes. Let's take a closer look. Verse 20, Jesus gives the first of four blessed are you statements. So in verses 20 through 22, Jesus will say, blessed are you, fill in the blank, four times. Four times in those three verses. Verse 20, the first time he says it, he says, blessed are you who are poor. It's a rather interesting thing to say, don't you think? Verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now. Also in verse 21, blessed are you who weep now. And then verse 22, the fourth blessed are you statement, Jesus says, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Wow. Really four odd things for Jesus to say, but he doesn't stop there. Beginning in verse 24, he has four woe to you statements. And if you notice the woe to you statements, each of them corresponds with the blessed are you statement that he had just given in verses 20 through 22. And so there are four blessed are you statements. There are four woe to you statements. And number one, blessed are you 
corresponds with number one, woe to you. Number two, blessed are to you, corresponds with number two, woe to you. Each of the woe to you's is a counterpoint to the blessed are you's in the prior verses. Verse 24, he says, woe to you who are rich. Verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now. Verse 25, woe to you who laugh now. And verse 26, woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Now, you can see why we call these Beatitudes revolutionary. Every single one of the four blessed are you teachings flies in the face of conventional wisdom, doesn't it? Blessed are you who are poor? What? (laughs) I don't think so. But that's what Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger now. I don't think so, especially three days after Thanksgiving. But that's what Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, blessed are you when men hate you. And then Jesus at the same time, for woe to you statements, each of those flies in the face of conventional wisdom also. Woe to you who are rich, what? I always thought that was a good thing. Woe to you who are well fed now, I thought that was good to have a full tummy. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Think about it. The word blessed, as we've talked about before, I usually translate it one of two ways. Uh, I learned this in Bible college, and I've never found a better definition. Blessed are you. Blessed means congratulations, and it also means buoyed up. I always have to explain that second one. What do you mean buoyed up? Just like that buoy out in the lake, you have 100 kids pile on top of that. You can press it under the surface. But as soon as those kids fall off, it bounces right back to the top. And that's what it's like to be blessed in God's kingdom. No matter what the world does to push you under and to try to drown you and attack you and, 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 and kill you once and for all, you'll always bounce back up to the surface with Jesus on your side. Amen? But let's focus on the first of those definitions, congratulations. Blessed means congratulations. So with that in mind, here's what Jesus is saying. Consider how countercultural that first blessed are you statement is. Jesus is saying, congratulations to you who are poor. Congratulations. When someone plays Super Lotto and someone picks every single one of the right numbers and wins $100 million, What is the one word that just about everybody says to that person that won? Congratulations. We say congratulations to the person who wins Super Lotto, right? How often have you found yourself saying congratulations for someone who spent their last 20 bucks to buy 20 lottery tickets and picked every single number wrong? They got every number wrong. wrong. They got bupkis as far as their prize money because they didn't win anything. They spent their last 20 bucks. They were dirt poor before they bought those 20 lottery tickets. They're even more dirt poor afterwards. Do you go up to that person and say, good job, congratulations. But that's basically what Jesus is saying here. Now look at the second beatitude. Congratulations to you who hunger now. How upside down is that? As we're stuffing our faces three days ago on Thanksgiving, we felt like that was something very good and blessed and special, didn't we? We felt blessed. Did any of you drive up on Thanksgiving Day to a homeless guy on on D Street and roll down your window? We don't even do this anymore, do we? Press the button. You roll down your window and say, congratulations. 
You didn't get to eat half of the feast that I did today. Way to go, homeless guy, and you take off. Anybody do that? No, it's like, that sounds cruel. I would never say congratulations to the guy that's had half to eat today, what I get to eat in a normal Thanksgiving day. How about that third beatitude? Congratulations to you who weep now. This is such a topsy-turvy thing for Jesus to say. In our culture, we say congratulations to new parents in the delivery room, don't we? We say congratulations to the bride and groom on their wedding day. And we say congratulations to graduates who are walking and getting their diploma and moving that rope over to the left side of their caps. And we say congratulations to those. But what, when's the last time you said congratulations to a widow at her husband's funeral? We would never say that, would we? Uh, when's the last time... We said congratulations to a young woman receiving divorce papers for, from her husband. And when's the last time we said congratulations to a young man who just flunked out of college and won't graduate and won't walk with the rest of his class on graduation day? Do you see how completely upside down Jesus' teaching seems to be? And what about that fourth one? What does he say? Blessed are you. When men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you, your name is evil because of the Son of Man. When is the last time we said congratulations to someone who is hated by most of their neighbors? When's the last time we said congratulations to those who in groups are consistently excluded? Those who are consistently rejected? Those who are consistently ostracized and pushed aside? by others that don't like Christians. When's the last time we saw, said congratulations to those folks? We don't say it very often. How could Jesus have such an upside-down teaching here? Because in our culture, we say congratulations to the rich and woe to the poor. But Jesus says congratulations to the poor and woe to the rich. In our culture, we say congratulations to those who are first in the buffet line at, at the Golden Corral. We don't say congratulations to those who miss dinner entirely. Jesus says congratulations to the hungry and woe to the well-fed. In our culture, we say congratulations to those who are on cloud nine and woe to those who are down in the dumps. But Jesus says congratulations to those who are in the depths of despair and woe to those who are laughing it up at the improv. And in our culture, we say congratulations to those who are well-liked and honored by our society, and woe to those who are hated and rejected. But Jesus says congratulations to those who are hated and rejected, and woe to those who the world adores. That's some topsy-turvy teaching. How can this be? Well, it can be because Jesus' values and his priorities and his morals are 180 degrees from the values and morals and priorities of this world. In Jesus' day, to most Jewish people, the word blessed evoked images of a long life and wealth in a, a full barn and defeated enemies. In our day, to most Americans, the word blessing evokes images of good health and a nice two-story house and a strong retirement account and lots of loving family and friends. But Jesus is on a completely different plane than we are. When we call blessings blessings he calls them woes 
because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, his priorities are higher than our priorities, his values are higher than our values, his morals are higher than our morals, and his perspective is so much higher than our perspective. And we as Christ's followers living in this fallen, sin-cursed world need to make sure we change our perspective too. Our perspective needs to be upside down just like his. Jesus says congratulations to his followers who are financially poor because if we have made financial sacrifices for Jesus and for others, we gain access to the riches of God's kingdom that are so much greater than the best 401k account. The access he gives us to the the spiritual riches in his kingdom are are so much greater than the, the best mansion or the nicest new car or the best retirement account. Jesus says congratulations to his followers who go without eating in the course of doing ministry because Jesus will give them food that is so much more satisfying than the freshest double-double or, or latte, cappuccino, whatever you get from Starbucks. He'll give you something that is so much more satisfying. Jesus says congratulations to his followers whose hearts weep over the things that break Jesus' heart because true joy will come in the morning. And I love how Chuck Swindoll makes this point. He says, those who weep over all that is wrong in the world are more likely to commit themselves to making things right. Isn't that true? Jesus says, blessed are you who weep, knowing full well that those who weep over the sin and problems in this world are more likely to be ones to be a part of the solution. Finally, Jesus says congratulations to his followers who are hated and excluded and insulted and rejected for standing firm in the faith because our heavenly reward will be great and we will stand side by side with the great men and women of the faith who have gone before us that have have suffered the same insults and the same persecution and the same rejection. Here in Luke 6, as Jesus took his newly selected 12 apostles under his wing. The first thing he taught them was these beatitudes. In essence, Jesus was saying, Apostles, men, if you want to effectively be my ambassadors and effectively share my teaching and mirror my priorities, you're going to have to unlearn many of the things that you have already learned. And I think Jesus says much the same thing to us today. Some of us in this room today grew up in the church. Some of us have been in the church for decades. Some of us have been around Christians most of our lives. And Jesus speaks to us today and says, Christians, some of you need to unlearn much of what you've already learned about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The same goes for you and me. When we come to the realization that we have plateaued in our effect in our effectiveness as Christians we need to revisit this teaching that Jesus gave when he was on this plateau we live in this fallen sin cursed world 24/7 and it's inevitable that we will be tainted by the values and the priorities of our world you and i need to wash our brains with the pure water of Christ upside down topsy turvy teaching And each of us has to make a clear and conscious decision. When it comes to my priorities and my morals, will I follow the world's way or will I follow Christ's way? I like how William Barclay says it. He probably says it better than I could. 
If you take the world's way, you must abandon the values of Christ. If you take Christ's way, you must abandon the values of the world. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, I want you to count the cost and I want you to take up your cross and follow me every day? Because the values of Jesus Christ are not the values of this world. The priorities of Jesus Christ are not the priorities of this world. And if you are going to live in this world, Jesus says, you better make sure that you are not living of the world. His priorities will always be topsy-turvy, will always be upside down compared to the priorities of this world. Let's continue on in verse 27. Jesus says, but I tell you, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others what you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus' upside-down, topsy-turvy teaching continues in these ten verses. And here Jesus' focus is on love. Long story short, Christians, if you are truly following me, Jesus says, your love will not be like the world's love. Your love will not be like the world's love. Jesus nicely summarizes the world's kind of love in verses 32 through 34. People of the world love those who love them, right? In verse 32 there, people of the world love those who love them. It's pretty straightforward. Verse 33 People of the world do good to those who do good to them. Tit for tat. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you say hello to me, I'll say hello to you. If you treat me like crud, I'll treat you like crud. It's the way the world works. Verse 34, people of the world lend to others expecting full repayment. You might call this easy love. Call it easy love. It's easy to love those who treat you well and and make you feel good. Any fool can love someone who treats them well. Even a hardened criminal on death row can love his mother. Even a gangster can lend money to someone. He can lend them some cold, hard cash, fully expecting that cash back. After all, that gangster knows if he doesn't get his money back, he can break some kneecaps along the way, can't he? Any gangster can lend money long as he knows it's coming back to him. But what Jesus teaches here in verses 27 through 31 and also in verses 35 and 36, we could call hard love. This is hard love. Throughout this passage, Jesus uses the Greek word agape. That shouldn't surprise you. It's the highest form of love in the Greek language. 
This highest form of love. I, I love how William Barclay explains how agape love plays out in the life of a Christian. He says this, no matter what that person does to us, according to agape love, we will never allow ourselves to desire anything but his highest good. And we will deliberately and of set purpose go out of our way to be good and kind to him. That's not easy, is it? That's hard love. He continues, This love towards our enemies is not only something of the heart, it is something of the will. It is something which by the grace of Christ we may will ourselves to do. If you are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps and carry out agape love, you cannot simply do that with your heart. You've got to do it with your will. It takes will. It takes determination. It, it, It takes priority to love someone who is an absolute pain in the neck and drives you up the wall. It takes a stubborn will to love someone who is unlovable. Agape love is Christ's sacrificial love that only someone who's following in Christ's footsteps could possibly understand or possibly replicate. Christ's agape love beckons us to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us, to give to everyone who wants to lend, to, I should say, everyone who wants to borrow from us. Christ's agape love beckons us to be kind to the ungrateful, to be merciful to the unmerciful, to give forgiveness to the unforgivable. That's hard. That's hard. But it can be done as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And one of the best examples of carrying out this kind of agape love for someone who does not deserve it is a woman by the name of Mary Johnson. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? 
I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me. I don't know you. Let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close. They are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. And that's just a small example of what Jesus Christ upside down, topsy-turvy, agape love looks like in the real world. Jesus could do it through Mary Johnson, and he can do it through you and me as well. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you. That with your grace and your strength, we can love as you have loved. We can have mercy on the unmerciful. We could show kindness to the unkind, forgiveness to the unforgivable. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to follow you well. I pray, O oh God, that we wouldn't despair when we are poor because you say we will one day be blessed. And in fact, even today, in the midst of our physical or material poverty, you give us spiritual riches that far outweigh anything that money could buy. Lord, we thank you that when we mourn, we are blessed because rejoicing will come in the morning. Thank you, Lord, that when we are hungry, we can rejoice that we have food, as Jesus said, that no one really knows about. The disciples, even at the time, as he was sitting there with the woman at the well, they didn't understand if someone had brought him food already. They didn't sink in that Jesus could skip a meal because the spiritual food was so much more satisfying than any takeout they could have brought him there at the well. Lord, help us to rejoice when we are persecuted, when we're insulted, when people laugh at our priorities. 
when they laugh at our values, when they call us archaic, outdated, narrow-minded, old-fashioned. And those are just the kind words they use for us, Lord. When we're called those names, may we truly rejoice and count it a blessing to suffer any insult for the name of Christ. Help us, Lord, to follow you well, to not acquiesce to the values and the morals and the priorities of this world, but to conform those things to the image of Christ as we follow you each day. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've come needing some prayer, we want to pray with you. If you've come needing to find out more about making a decision for Jesus Christ, maybe it's a first-time decision, maybe you need to rededicate your life because you've been backsliding, maybe you made a decision to accept Christ but no one taught you, you need to be baptized as you make that decision. Maybe you need to be baptized today. We want to help you with that. Whatever that decision may be, we want to help. Whatever that prayer need may be, we want to help. So let's stand together and you come to the front or to the rear of the room here if you need to talk. If you need some prayer, we'd love to be here for you.